Amen. Stay standing and grab your Bible, and let's turn to John chapter 6, and let's just read the opening part here together as we hold God's Word in our hand. If you don't have a Bible with you, um, if we've got our ushers in the back, we just want to hold your hand up, and someone will bring you a Bible right where you're standing so you can follow along. If you don't have a Bible, hold up your hand, and someone's going to bring you a Bible right where you're sitting, and then if, when you got it, John chapter 6. John chapter 6, and we're picking it up in verse 41. This is what we read. The Jews then complained about him because he said, I'm the bread which came down from heaven. And they said, is is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then that he says, I've come down from heaven? Jesus therefore answered and said to them, do not murmur among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up at the last day. It is written in the prophets and they shall be taught by God. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. And so, God, we just come to you here today. And we thank you that you have taught us, that you've given us your very word, that we might take it in and receive from you and receive the life that it gives us. And I pray that you do that work here this morning. Give us open hearts and an open mind just to to receive from you and to see you clearly here today, Jesus, we ask in your name. Everybody said... Amen. You all may have a seat. So remember where we're picking it up here in in this section of scripture, because we've been a few weeks now in John chapter 6, our third third week here. And so we're seeing how chapter 6 began with the feeding of the 5,000, just 5,000 men, women and children not counted. So there's a, a great number of people that were fed by this miraculous feeding, Jesus taking just five loaves of bread, two small fish, and breaking it all, and giving it out to so many. And the the Jews have been witnessing all this. And then Jesus went and started to share with the people how he was the bread of life. And how people need to come to him and and, and have life. And they're asking for a sign. Give us a sign. Show us a sign. Because we, our fathers, they got the manna from heaven in the wilderness. That was pretty significant, right? And so this is all now, this section that we're looking at here today is all stemming from this kind of miracle and the conversation that was following. But notice what's happening here because all the Jews, they're murmuring, they're, they're complaining about this because Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. And of course, when Jesus said that, he was making a pretty emphatic statement that he was declaring equality with God, that he was God. I am. Just as God spoke to Moses at the burning bush, I am who I am. So the Jews understood this and they were having a hard time with them. So they complain. It's interesting, isn't it? You know, the Jews were these people that were called of God. And understand, they weren't called of God. They weren't chosen because they were a special people. But because God set his love upon them and his grace upon them and that God was going to use them to bring the Messiah into the world to preserve the scriptures as we have here. This is all by God's simple just choosing election by his grace here. And so the Jews are special today and, and, and we're thankful for the Jews because of what they preserved, how they've been used to God and how God's going to continue to fulfill his plans and his purposes uh, in, in large part through them. So we're grateful, but they're, they're not any different than anybody else. In fact, we see here that they're complaining and, and that's what they did back in the wilderness. When God would provide all the, the manna from heaven every morning. I mean, just think of how miraculous, how wonderful that would be. And yet, as time went on, they began to complain. Is this all you've got, God? What else is on the menu? Because we're getting tired of this. And manna would have been pretty awesome to be eaten every morning. 
But they got tired, they complained, they grumbled. And what it does is it shows us that this is really a condition of the human heart where we're so susceptible, we're so prone to begin to just complain and to see the things of God as just kind of common. And, and sort of begin to take for granted these things. Because here's God now, not only supplying manna for them, but as Jesus says, you got the very bread from heaven, the true bread from heaven, right here before you. And yet they complained. They didn't see how good they had it. They didn't see this incredible gift that God was giving them in his very son, Jesus, and providing this bread, true bread from heaven. And they simply looked at things from that human lens rather than that spiritual lens. How often might we do that? Where we begin to think, oh, that can't be from God. That's too natural. It reminds me of the story of that man that was sitting in, a, in his town and, and a flood was beginning to happen. The river was rising and the man in a panic who couldn't swim got up to the roof of, of his house as the waters began to rise and he started to fear for his life and he began to call out to God, God, you've got to spare me. You've got to save me. And so he's just trusting the Lord to do a work. Well, suddenly a boat comes pulling up here beside him and says, hey, get in the boat. We're here to rescue you. And the man says, no, I've prayed to God and God's going to rescue me. So the boat drove off shaking their heads and the man's getting, the water's getting higher and he's getting a little more panicked and suddenly a helicopter comes flying overhead, lowers down the ladder and they're yelling down below, man, grab a hole. Let's take you away and spare you here and save you. And the man's like, no, I believe that God's going to spare me here and God's going to rescue me. Well, the helicopter went off and the waters continued to rise. Eventually swept him away and the man perished and died. Ends up in heaven. And he goes before God and he's kind of upset thinking, God, where were you? Why didn't you help me and save me? And God said, I sent you a, ho- a boat and a helicopter. What more do you want? See, these Jews, these Jews were kind of looking for the spectacular as we oftentimes do. They all just saw Jesus as a, a common man. They knew where he came from. Like, isn't this Joseph's son? We've seen him grow up around us. This can't be the guy. This can't be our Messiah. This can't be any special bread from heaven for us. And so they began to dismiss him. It's the old saying that familiarity breeds contempt. And that's kind of how they, they saw Jesus and viewed Jesus. Look at verse 43. As they're complaining about this, Notice here, Jesus therefore answered and said to them, Do not murmur among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up at the last day. It is written in the prophets and they shall all be taught by God. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Now, I love how Jesus just cuts right through because they're all complaining and murmuring among one another. It's like they're kind of doing it in secret. They don't want Jesus to hear how they're really viewing him. So they're all kind of discussing this, going, who is this guy? He can't be who he says he is. Come on, are we going to buy this? And Jesus just says, hey, cuts right in there. He just gets right to the, to the heart of the matter here, which is a matter of the heart because their hearts were hard. And they're not receiving this truth of Jesus So he just cuts right in there. Don't murmur among yourselves. He knows what's going on. And Jesus here drops a pretty huge statement because he's basically saying in those verses we just read, if you were really of my father, then you would accept me. And if you really knew God, then you would know me and understand who I am. 
And then he takes it even further by saying that nobody comes to Jesus unless the Father draws him. Now, the Jews would have been quick to say, oh, we're of the Father. You? We don't know. But Jesus says, listen, no one's going to accept me or come to me unless the Father draws him. And if you're not accepting me, then what does that say? That maybe you're not really of the Father. Now, this whole idea uh, of this statement that Jesus makes that no one comes to me unless the Father draws them, that's given a lot of Bible students real fits over the centuries to kind of balance this out. What does that mean exactly? How does that look? This whole idea of election and, and God's predestination versus man's free will and, and human responsibility. People have been debating this for years and centuries, wondering, how does this work? How do, we, how do we balance these two out? Is it that God chooses some to be saved? Or is it that man has free will and must come to God? Which one is it? Which is right? The answer is, they both are. Because we find both of those things in God's word. Look at what, we, in 1 Peter 1, 2, we, we talk about this election of God, but it's based on the foreknowledge of God. 1 Peter 1, 2, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. It's not that God has chosen a, a super elite group of people that are like, you know, the, the true Christians and only they are because they were a special, savable people. That's not the case here. But the reality is, is that God simply knows those who are going to receive his salvation. He knows those who are going to, within their free will, choose to come and receive that salvation. Predestination, you see, is all wrapped up together in God's foreknowledge. Look at how Romans describes it here, Romans 8, 29 to 30. For whom he foreknew, these he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren, Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. Now, I understand we can really kind of hurt our finite brains trying to figure this out. How does that look? How does that work? How does God choose people and, and, and kind of predestine those to be saved, but then give man free will? How does that work? And you see, the problem is, is that what so many people do is they bring these matters into their own finite thinking and reasoning and go, I've got to figure this out. And they go, if God truly chooses, then he must not allow man to have free will. Because doesn't man's free will violate, violate God's choice? And doesn't God's choice then violate man's free will? And so within our own thinking, we go, it can't be both it's got to be one or the other and so people swing too far to one side or the other and go it's got to be this but they reason this way only because it fits within their only limited way of thinking and you see for me i think it's so wonderful and so great to be able to look at this and go the bible teaches that yes god chooses some to be saved but then he also says whosoever will may come whosoever believes in Jesus will receive eternal life. The invitation is open to all. God, would God say a verse like that and say, whosoever will may come, all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And then suddenly he says, oh good, I'm going to do that. Lord, save me. Oh wait, sorry man, yeah. No, you're not one of the guys that I've saved. I'm sorry. Sorry you read that verse. That's not for you though. <laughs> 
Good try. No, God, would God put that out there and say, whosoever will come, all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And then somebody try, and then God say, sorry, you're not one of the elect. So here's the wonderful thing, guys, is that we don't need to try to reconcile these things. Just like when I said last week how somebody came to Charles Spurgeon and said, how do you reconcile these two things? And, and, and Charles Spurgeon said, I never need to reconcile friends. These two things work together. And the beauty of this is that we get to see how wonderful and how great God is in the fact that he's given man free will and yet he's able to operate in his sovereignty and in his election and in his purposes, know who's going to be saved and still work within that giving man free will. It makes God all the more incredible and wonderful to me. And here's the thing, we're just not going to be able to figure him out. If God were a God that we could figure out, if he was small enough for us to figure out, he wouldn't be big enough for us to worship and say, God, we're just seeking to follow you. We're living for you. Our lives are yours. So that's the reality here. And so we're going to be looking at this a little bit more. And in fact, the chapter is going to end here today talking about that election. And how God even chose somebody within his own inner circle that would betray him. So it's hard to understand and reconcile these things, but we know that the Bible teaches both sides. So we hold both of these together. Sometimes we hold them in tension and go, I don't know how this works, but I know we hold them in balance and go, yeah, God elects those, predestines those who are going to be saved. He knows in his foreknowledge, but he's also allowed man to have free will and that whoever, whosoever will may come. It's awesome. We know that God's heart is at all would be saved. First Timothy 2, 3 to 4. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. But God knows some aren't. He knows who those are. And he knows who those are that will receive him in their free will. But he desires all to be saved. It's given every opportunity for people to come and experience that salvation. Notice what it says there in, in the middle of verse 45, as it's written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught by God. God's given out his word that everybody could know, understand, and, and have an opportunity to receive that salvation. See, nobody can ever sit here and go, well, I'm not saved. I'm not a Christian today because I just am not one of the chosen. I'm not one of the elect. Nobody can say that. You come to Jesus and receive his gift of salvation by his grace. And guess what you'll find? You're one of the elect. Come to Jesus and you'll experience what that is. You'll see that you were chosen before the foundation of the world as Ephesians writes. So good. Well, the more that the people here rejected Jesus in his message and, and what he's saying to them, the more that they were kind of hardening their hearts even to receive Jesus, the, difficult, the more difficult it was becoming for them to accept him. And on the flip side, the more that they would open themselves to the truth of Jesus, if they were willing to do so, then the more that they would see God, the more, the more that they would understand this is the work of God. We're opening our hearts to this. We're, we're accepting, we're receiving, we're, we're accepting it sometimes by faith. But if they were to do that, then the more that they would see God. Now, the next verse here, verse 46, is interesting because it says that not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God, he has seen the Father. So the reality is we know that nobody can see God at least physically and literally in fact Exodus 33 verse 20 tells us that that no one can see God and live uh, he, he's such a, a holy God we just be consumed within him but 
Here's what Jesus would say in John chapter 1, verse 18, as we started our study in John. Here's what Jesus says. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten son who is in the bosom of the father, he has declared him. So here's the great thing is that when we look to Jesus, we get to see God. We get to see the heart of God, the love of God, the grace of God, the very truth of God. When we look to Jesus, these are the very things that we see. Jesus came to to declare God, to make him known. And as we get into the word of God, guess what the word of God does? Everything in the word of God is all about Jesus, pointing to Jesus. So as we get in the word of God, we get to see Jesus. And in so doing, we get to see what God is like. But because these Jews here that Jesus is, is conversing with, because these Jews were not knowing God, they didn't recognize Jesus, and because they didn't accept Jesus, they were being kept from recognizing the work of God. Look at verse 47. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. Now here we have one of the clearest and most simplest statements given in God's word to the way of salvation. It's right here. It's so simple. And Jesus uses that term most assuredly to really give authority to this truth claim he's giving here. He's kind of saying, you know, true, truly, truly, verily, most assuredly. In other words, like, listen up. I'm about to drop something on you guys that is just revolutionary, that you don't want to miss. Most assuredly, I say, he who believes in me has everlasting life. That's it. Salvation does not come about by some system of works or deeds or some religious practice. It's not about going to church in order to secure your way to heaven. Your salvation is not a matter of your morality. Your salvation is a matter of trust in Jesus's good work that he's done for you. And if you believe in Jesus, in other words, you're, and, and that word, in the Greek pisteo, as we've been seeing through the book of John, is more than just kind of having a, a head knowledge and just a belief about God. There's a lot of people that will walk around today and say, oh, I believe in it. God in some kind of just intellectual way. But this idea here, believing in Jesus, is this idea of you put your full trust in him. In other words, you've recognized, I'm a sinner, I'm guilty before God, and I have no access to God on my own. I have no good standing before God on my own because of my sin. But I put my trust in Jesus that he's sufficient. He's able to forgive me and save me and clothe me in his righteousness so that I now can have a standing before God. That's what it means to believe in him. That's what it means to truly be saved. It's as though you just put your full trust and confidence in Jesus and surrendered your life to him. That's what Jesus is getting at here. And those that have done that, Jesus says, you have everlasting life. You're the assurance of heaven. You've been given life now, set free from sin and made whole in Jesus. What a precious gift of God's grace that is. And Jesus goes on here, verse 48, to say, I'm the bread of life. Your fathers, they ate the manna in the wilderness and they're dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven that one may eat of it and not die. See, here's the thing. Everything that people put their trust in apart from Christ, everything that you're trying to find satisfaction or hope 
or peace in apart from Christ is not going to sustain you or hold you up or be beneficial to you. Because Jesus says, and remember, earlier in chapter 6, everybody's saying, hey, remember Moses, our man, he gave us the bread from heaven, the manna. But Jesus says, hey, how's that manna working out for you? Because your fathers all ate that manna and they're dead. It didn't do anything for them. It wasn't able to sustain life or give life. It wasn't able to help them and lead them through. They all died out there in the wilderness. And you're holding up this man as some great thing, even though God provided it, even though God gave it. This was not what you were to be basing your hope in. And the same goes for many people today who are looking at other resources, other things in which they're trying to find life. Every single person, every single one of us are born with that innate kind of longing to be in relationship with God because he's our maker, our creator. And that's a part of you that, that you are missing if you are not in right standing with God. That only comes through Jesus. And you see, people are knowing that there's something missing. And they, they try to fill it by other things. But none of those things are going to aid or benefit in giving you life and giving you joy and giving you peace and anything. It's only found in Jesus. He's the true bread from heaven. He's the one that when you eat of it, he says in verse 50, you will not die. When you partake of Jesus, he's the bread of life and he doesn't just sustain life, he gives life. And that bread, speaking of himself, comes from heaven and anyone who takes him in will not die. Everlasting life. He goes on to say in verse 51, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. Well, the Jews in verse 52 therefore quarreled among themselves saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So what's Jesus doing now? He's been setting the stage. They've been Quarreling over the true manna, this breaking of the bread, the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus tying all that miracle in, the speaking of the manna, tying it all into the fact that he's the true bread from heaven. He's the bread. And now he says, the bread is my flesh. This bread is my flesh. Just tell him I'll call him back, okay? Um, the bread is my flesh. And what Jesus is doing, that's, that's kind of odd when we look at that we go, that bread is your flesh. What do you mean? Well, what Jesus is doing is he's pointing to the cross when he's going to lay down his flesh literally and he'll be broken. He'll be beaten. And he'll lay down his life sacrificially as that final atonement for sin. Now the Jews, however, they're, they're hearing all this and they start quarreling. They're going, what does he mean? How could he mean that we need to eat of his flesh? How does that work? Because what they're doing, they're taking everything literally on a natural level. That's all they're seeing. They're not viewing things through the lens of a, a spiritual lens. They're going, they're, they're, ta- they're making all this kind of akin to cannibalism. They're going, what? What is he calling us to do? I don't know if I'm comfortable with that. I don't want to eat anybody's flesh. This isn't, this isn't cool. This isn't kosher. So they question how he could possibly give his flesh for them to eat. And, and, and then who would ever want to do it? But again, they're looking at it from a very human level while Jesus, as we will see as we move along, Jesus is speaking on a, on a very spiritual level. Now, let me just share something here with you that, of just the beauty of Jesus using this reference that he's the bread of life. Because bread, 
People say that bread, that humans can survive longer on bread than any other substance. That bread is the one thing that can, can take people longer and farther. It's cross-cultural. It's enjoyed by everyone on an almost daily basis. Except for the trend of being gluten-free now. That's kind of changed everything. I think gluten-free is, is also kind of a rejection of Jesus in sorts. I think that's kind of... People, no. It's like, how do you... doesn't work, but... You need to pray about that, you unspiritual people. <laughs> I'm kidding. Where's your faith, Emily? Okay, no. Teasing. I'm joking, but that's how... I think that's just so cool that Jesus uses this as a reference because that was what everybody could... That's what everybody could associate with. And I go, yeah, that's, that's practical to me. And you see, here's the great thing, bread. Where did bread come about? Bread comes about by a seed that gets planted in the ground. It grows up. You cut it down. You, you ground it up. You, you make that kind of dough. And then you put it in the fire, in the oven to bake where it's enjoyed by all. Do you see that process there? That's exactly what Jesus endured for you. He came as a, as a little seed to this world where he became one of us and he, he grew up among us to be like us, to experience the things that we do. And yet he was rejected, he was cut down, he was grounded in his beatings and in his sufferings and he experienced the fire of God on the cross as he took the judgment that you and I deserved. He received that for us. Crucified, killed, but rose again endured the fire he came out where we can all partake of him and enjoy him now and experience life in him because he is the bread of life it's amazing and notice that this isn't exclusive in any way this is very inclusive because it says at the end of verse 51 that he gave this bread for the life of the world not not for the elect not for the chosen he gives this for the life of the world, that anyone who is willing to receive it can partake of it and partake of him and experience true life, redemption, salvation, forgiveness, life and life eternal. Verse 53 goes on to say, Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats of my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is food indeed and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in him and I in him. Or abides in me and I in him. See, Jesus knows that the Jews are, are having a hard time with this and, and yet he kind of ups the ante a bit. They're going, how can we eat his flesh? And now he says, he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood. I think Jesus is having a little bit of fun with these guys. and trying to, let's, let's see how we can really shock them now. Let's see them really be repulsed. Because this was something that was forbidden in the Levitical law. In, in Leviticus chapter 17, they were forbidden from drinking blood. And so they all know this. This, this practice or suggestion would have just sounded preposterous to this audience here. But again, they're taking everything purely literally. And they're failing to see what Jesus really was speaking of. So to be sure that we all know, what is Jesus speaking of? To eat of my flesh and drink of my blood? What does that look like today? 
How do we do that? Well, look at, look at what William McDonald said. He said this. By comparing this verse with verse 47, it can be definitely shown that to eat his flesh and to drink his blood means to believe on him. In verse 47, we read that he who believes in me has everlasting life. And in verse 54, we learn that whoever eats his flesh and drinks his blood has eternal life. Now, things equal to the same thing are equal to each other. So to eat his flesh and to drink his blood is simply to believe on Jesus. All who believe on him will be raised up at the last day. That refers, of course, to the bodies of those who have died trusting in the Lord Jesus. That's what it is. It's, it's simply that. Jesus says, eat of my flesh and drink of my blood. You're saying, I believe in you, Jesus. I believe that you are the Son of God who came to die on a cross to forgive me my sin and that by putting my trust in you and not myself, I can have life in you. Jesus says, there you go. You've taken me in. You've partaken of my flesh and my blood. The very things that I gave up in order to redeem mankind. That's what Jesus is saying, simply believing in him. And, and those that might be saved, when he says that he will raise them up together, he, he's speaking of those that have, have died in faith in Jesus. Those that were dying might have been thinking, Lord, what, what's happening? I thought you were going to save me and I would live forever. And they drift off into death. Jesus says, listen, I'm going to be able to raise you up again. Don't worry, death is not the end. When you're in me, you have life and life forever. Though you might die physically, yet you will live. Isn't that what he said to Martha when their brother Lazarus died? Though you may die, yet you will live. Because I'm the resurrection of life. Jesus says, I'll raise you up again. Now, those that have believed in him, as he says, he who eats my flesh, and drinks my blood, abides in me, and I in him. You say, man, there's, there's just a oneness that comes now. There's just a, 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 a fellowship, a, a, a sweet intimacy that comes as you take him in and you appropriate Jesus. You internalize Jesus and you partake of the Lord Jesus. There's a, a now a, a oneness and an intimate fellowship together. You see, eating together in this day, it, it was way more significant than it is for us today. Oh, I love eating with, I love sitting down with people for a good meal. It's great. But in this day, man, it meant something even deeper. Because remember how when Jesus would go and eat with people, Republicans and sinners, the kind of the, the, the looked down upon, the, the religious leaders would come along and say, Jesus, how could you do that? You're eating with sinners why did they make such a big deal about that isn't that who jesus came to say because they understood that anytime you sat down and broke bread with somebody you were like becoming one with them you were entering into a deep fellowship and relationship with them because in that day there were no rules of double dipping right you'd have your your sauces out on the table your bread bread's getting passed around you're breaking off a piece you're dipping in the sauce you're having a bite you're like i'm gonna try that so you're dipping in that sauce and another person's doing it and dna's getting mixed up in there nobody's worried about double dipping or spreading germs everybody's like hey man this is great and as you're splitting this meal you're splitting one another you're you are entering into an intimacy and fellowship which is why I love when I sit down for a meal with people. I just 
go right at it, double dipping. I don't wash up. I just go right in there and I spread it on and say, hey man, I want to just be in fellowship with you like never before. It's great. Try it sometime. It's super good. I don't do that. I'm teasing you. Just making sure you're all awake. As people are retching, having eaten a meal with me going, oh my goodness, I didn't know he was doing that. I wasn't. I'm kidding you. But, but you see, that's what's taking place. It was, it was a big deal. And so Jesus is saying like, man, as you come together and you, you, you take me in, you appropriate the work of the cross that I've, I've done, my, my life laid down for you. You've received me in by faith and belief in my work for you. Man, now we're entering into fellowship. You're, you're abiding in me and guess what? I'm, a, I'm abiding in you. There's a great work that's taken place here. All Jesus is really saying, as, as Warren Wearsby says, is just as you take in food and drink within your body and it becomes a part of you, so you must receive me within your innermost being so that I can give you life. And, and there are those that just, they view Jesus as that one that, you know, well, you're out here. That's my, my you know, kind of Christian part of my life. But I don't want to mix that. With the other stuff, I've got my, my activities, my other relationships, I've got my interest here, my hobbies, but Jesus, you know, I just want to keep this, so we compartmentalize things in our life oftentimes. And we want to keep Jesus at bay, and Jesus says, no, here's what life is. is you're taking me in. You're taking me in, and you're mixing it up. Instead of having that TV dinner, you're making like a shepherd's pie, and everything's just getting mixed in there. And Jesus is saying, I just, want, I just want to be brought into your life. I want you to appropriate and internalize me into your innermost parts, where then you begin to experience life, where you're saying, I'm not just doing this on my own, but I'm doing this now in Jesus, with Jesus, for Jesus. Everything I'm about, my life is his, and it's for him. And he's a part of me now. That's what Jesus is getting at. Moving on, verse 57, as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead. He who eats this bread will live forever. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. So Jesus was there in a synagogue, there in Capernaum, teaching. We get to go to see the synagogue in Capernaum. Where Jesus was teaching. If you've never been to Israel, next March, let's go. Info meeting in a few minutes. Let's wrap this up. Come to Israel. Okay, a little, yeah, just my plug for the day here. But he's there teaching. This is where the crowd, no doubt, when they were looking for him in our last day, they're searching out Jesus. They finally come to the synagogue and they find Jesus there. And he's just been doing this sermon, this dialogue about the true meaning of the, the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, that he's the bread of life. He's tying it all in together. He's teaching there. But he says here, he says, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. The question is, what are you feeding on today? What are you partaking of? Again, we're not talking about anything weird here, but we're simply referring to those that are willing to look to Jesus in faith and to receive him into your life because it's only he that can provide that satisfaction and fulfillment. It's only he that can provide that life. Where are you going to find that nourishment? Where are you going to be fed? What are you looking to, to be made whole? 
It's in Jesus. He says there in verse 57, He who feeds on me will live because of me. That's the true bread of heaven. So we've seen the confusion of the disciples. Well, moving along here, we've got we to gotta wrap this up here, but we see here next the retreat of the disciples. Look at verse 60. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, This is a hard saying. Who can understand it? When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples complained about this, he said to them, Does this offend you? What then if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before, going back up to heaven, being with the Father in glory? Verse 63, it's the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The word that I speak to you or the words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. So that was a hard saying for many of these people. They're hearing this talk about eating his flesh, drinking his blood. And that was hard. But more so, not just that they were having a hard time understanding it. They were offended by it. That's ultimately the meaning there. They're offended. They didn't like it. They didn't want to be a part of this. How often... Are people offended by simply the good news of Jesus today? Why are they offended? Because they don't want to give up or mess up what they got going, which they think sometimes is a good thing. Or they don't want to be told they're a sinner and you need saving. Because a lot of people's go-to will be, wait, no, wait a second. I'm a good person. You don't know me. I do good things, man. You don't know what kind of person. I'm a good person. I don't need Jesus. I'm good enough. And they get offended at the fact that we need a savior. The gospel becomes very offensive. These people are, are being offended because they're not grasping it. They're not wanting to grasp it. They, they don't want to be dealing with these truths and realize that they need Jesus. They think they're better than that. And Jesus makes clear here that this whole discourse is speaking of a spiritual work that Jesus is doing. Not speaking of some physical act, literally partaking of his flesh and blood. It's spiritually the words that I speak to your spirit in their life. And notice what he says there in verse 63, that the flesh profits nothing. And yet how often are people relying upon their flesh to get by, to be saved, to be right with the Lord. They're relying upon their own works, their own effort, the things that they can do. Jesus says, hey listen, the flesh profits nothing. Stop relying on you. Stop relying on the things that you think you're doing to contribute to your salvation. The flesh profits nothing. That's all that we're able to give. It's flesh. Unless we're born again. And we have the Spirit at work in us. It's a work of the Spirit that needs to take place. It's a work of the Spirit that leads us on. The words that I speak to you are spirit in your life. And same thing for the Word of God. These are spiritual words. That if we're not coming at it with the the direction of the Holy Spirit. And I encourage you guys, every time you get up in the morning, just pray, Lord, just fill me fresh and new with your Holy Spirit. Bring that empowering and leading and direction. As you open up God's word, ask, Lord, allow your spirit just to illuminate this truth because these words are spirit. And I know that as I get into them and I allow the spirit to lead me through the word of God, this is what's going to provide life. His words are spirit and they are life. But Jesus goes on to say in verse 64, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning. There it is, that foreknowledge. He knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who would betray him. And he said, therefore, I've said to you that no one can come to me unless it is also, unless it has been granted to him by my father. Jesus knew. 
there's that foreknowledge. He's not telling, he's not going, okay, you, 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 you need to go. You're not a part of the group. No, he's just laying out there. I know the heart of men. Jesus, in fact, said in chapter 2 of John that he didn't commit himself to anybody or entrust himself to many because he knew all men and knew what was in men. He knows the hearts of men. We can't fool him. Many were coming as false disciples here towards Jesus simply to do what? To get a free meal. Right? That's why they're seeking out Jesus. You fed the 5,000. That was awesome. Can't wait to see what else you got on the menu. It's going to be great. Let's go. What's, What's coming up in course number two now? That's what they wanted. Jesus knew what was in their heart and what they were all about. Many false disciples, after realizing that there was not going to be any more free handouts, hoopla, or action, they decided to pack it in and leave for good. Verse 66, from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. And understand, when we read about the disciples, we're not talking about the twelve. They're still around. But Jesus had many other disciples, many other followers of him that were tracking with him. But at this point, many departed, many left. They said, this sounds too weird, too difficult, too hard. And they weren't willing simply to come to Jesus and receive that life he had for them. They walked with him no more. What a sad state it is. When people choose to walk away from Jesus because he's not doing what they expect him to do. They wanted Jesus to work in a way that would fit within their own kind of theology or their own desires. We want some more food, Jesus. And when Jesus wasn't doing that, they walked away. What are you expecting from Jesus today? Is your faith dependent on what he's doing for you today? Or is your faith dependent on what he's already done for you? in bringing you salvation and life eternal. Because many are tracking with Jesus simply for what they want him to do. I want to grow my bank account. Give me my promotion at work. Do this and do that. And when those things don't come, they walk away. Your faith needs to be grounded in Jesus and Jesus alone. And in the work that he's already provided for you to find and, and to provide salvation in life. And that is enough. I've often said if Jesus does nothing else for me, he's already done all that he needs to for me. My life is his. There's no better way. There's, there's, what's the alternative? There is none. In fact, look at what we read here. I love it. We've seen the, the confusion by the disciples, the, the retreat of the disciples, and now we see the confession from the disciples look at verse 67 then jesus said to the 12 do you also want to go away but simon peter answered him lord to whom shall we go you have the words of eternal life also we have come to believe and know that you are the christ the son of the living god jesus threw out that question to his disciples to challenge them what they were looking for basically he's challenging them on whether they want to follow their own fleshy desires or or do they want to partake of the flesh of jesus that brings true life Peter answers wisely. Where else could we possibly receive something better than what we have found in you? Is that what you're able to say? Jesus, there's nothing better 
or greater than what we have already found in you. It's a great response. People say, I'd rather do this than turn to Christ. But every way that a man should go uh, apart from God leads one direction. Proverbs 14, 12. There's a way that seems right to man, but its end is the way of death. You have two choices in life, ultimately. You can go your way, or you can go God's way. One way leads to death. The other way leads to life. And the choice is yours. Jesus has made it possible. But you need to take that step of faith and receive it for yourself. Partake of his flesh. Taking his life, appropriate it for you. And find that life in him. Peter's statement closely resembles the very purpose statement of the whole gospel of John. Which John says, these things are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing you may have life in his name. That's essentially what Peter's saying here. Verse 78, Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for it was he who would betray him, being one of the twelve. Again, Jesus knew exactly those who were his. Are you his today? Have you taken him in? Have you, not, have you made him not, not just a, a part of your life? Have you made him your life? Have you partaken of him? Have you tasted and seen how good the Lord is today. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up and we're going to move into just a time of communion. As you do, let me put up a couple points to ponder. How have you taken in Jesus today? How has he been brought into your life? Because it's in appropriating him and his work on the cross in your life that will lead you to truly have life. Have you taken him in today? Secondly, What's your confession of Christ today? Have you experienced his words of eternal life? Or has that word become stale? Maybe you've, maybe you've drifted. Maybe you've kind of just had that life become a little bit stale. Maybe you today need to come and just take in Jesus again and afresh and anew and say, Jesus, where else can I go? You alone are the one that provides life. And I want to know that and experience it and have that today. And if you're here today and you don't know Jesus as your Savior, it's as simple as saying, Jesus, I recognize I'm a sinner and I'm in need of forgiveness of sin. And that's found in you through the cross. So forgive me and come and be my Lord and Savior. If you pray that prayer, Jesus says, you become born again, a child of God. The old life has passed away. Behold, all things have become new. New creation in Christ. If you haven't done that, I encourage you to do that today. Come and receive the life that Jesus has for you. Now we're going to move in a time of communion here this morning where we get to hold just these emblems and these, these pictures, these symbols simply. Jesus wasn't speaking ahead to communion when he talks about taking my flesh and, and my blood. A lot of people will say, well, it's this in communion that fulfills us where his, the bread becomes the very body of Christ and the blood becomes the very blood of Christ. We don't believe that. Jesus just simply says, do this in remembrance of me. In remembrance of what I've done, of, of how I've come to give you my life that you might have life. And so as you come and receive communion this morning, just take those back to your seat and just think about what you're doing here today. 
And think about the life that Jesus has provided for you and given to you. And take him in. Say, Jesus, I'm, I'm nothing without you. Come and be my life. So would you stand? And we're going to worship. And as we do, just make your way to the front. Partake of the communion. Take it back to your seat. And just do that on your own before the Lord. But do that with a, that thankfulness, remembrance. And truly take him in today.